Welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lansart, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Sarah Cameron, PhD student and work in organizational psychology. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates, as well as those who work closely with them. We hope you'll stick around. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. This is episode 70 and we are going to do a Q&A episode. So we collected some of the questions that you sent in through Instagram and Twitter. Um, if I look at my list here, those are the two channels through which uh, I, got, uh, I got questions to address in today's episode. But before we get to these questions, I wanted to just touch base with you, Sarah, and see what are you currently working on and... Uh, yeah, let's just start with that. What are you currently working on? Yeah, so I guess last week I came back from a conference, um, my first ever academic conference. And so uh, there was a bit of, uh, well, maybe recovery from that because it was they were quite full, long days. Um, and now I am getting, I guess I'm working on a few different projects. So I'm making a protocol because I'll be starting uh, data collection, hopefully in the fall, um, and kind of weighing the pros and cons of uh, pre-registration, uh, which for any listeners who are also in uh, psychology, I'm sure they can relate to the, um, I guess, maybe complicated decision that that sometimes is. Um, so I'm working on that protocol. Um, and then also still finishing up uh, a paper that I was working on from my master's thesis, um, which I got some nice feedback for at the conference. Uh, and then also now, I guess, because I'm a little bit more settled into the PhD and, uh, you know, doing making some plans of what will happen post data collection or maybe side projects that I can work on um, while I'm running the, uh, the lab studies. So uh, slowly but surely, it's getting busier. I remember a, a fourth year PhD student in our department saying to me that, you know, as time goes on in the course of your PhD, you start out with maybe just one project on the go, and then suddenly it's two, and then suddenly it's five, and things become more hectic, and the planning becomes a little bit harder. Uh, and that's definitely the the situation I'm in now. Yeah, and to follow up with that, what is going well, and what would you say you're struggling with at the moment? Yeah, what is going well? I would say I'm feeling quite motivated, and so... Uh, and it's natural that motivation is unstable um, or it fluctuates quite often. And I found going to a conference uh, was a really good kind of gave me a good burst of energy and to meet all these other young people who are interested in the same topics that I am. And, uh, you know, I didn't really have any expectations going into this conference, but then to be able to form pretty strong connections, I would say, with uh, hopefully people that I'll be working with. Um, you know, maybe 10, 20 years down the line, I found that really uh, exciting. And so I came back really motivated to get started on the task that I had to do. Um, as for what I am struggling with, I think it's more to do with, um, yeah, uncertainty, because now, you know, before I was just writing a research proposal. And so, well, of course, I wanted to do it well, it was all kind of hypothetical, it was what I planned to do. And now, um, 
it's actually I'm carrying out what I I said I would do and uh it somehow feels higher stakes and so I think you know because also this is the first time that I'm really doing this kind of data collection um I I think it'll be some learning on the fly and just uh yeah so I think I'm struggling with kind of trusting myself that I'm capable of making the right choices uh and that yeah I guess that I have the skills that I need so there's definitely still some insecurities there, I would say, and that's probably what I'm struggling with the most. Um, and can I flip it back to you, Ava? What are what are you yeah, working sure. on at the moment? So we have pretty much finished the spring semester here. Um, it isn't fully finished for me yet because I, I have two students who um, couldn't participate in the final exam. So I'm sort of waiting to see when they get... Uh, when they will be able to take the exam and then have to make an uh, extra exam for them and and grade it. Um, But in terms of teaching, I'm finished until August. Um, Also wrapping up um, a big deliverable of the experiments that my PhD candidate did in the Netherlands. So that's sort of a, a big milestone as well in her project. Um, those are the, I would say, the two main things that I've been focusing on in the past months. And that makes that right now I'm catching up on some loose ends, uh, some technical documents that I'm working on within technical committees then, um, that I'm editing and preparing to send out for voting. Uh, things like that, sort of picking up some loose ends. And then hopefully, or not hopefully, I will be going to Delft in one month from now. And I'll, I'll be there to spend time with my, with my students and um, catch up with my colleagues and all of that. So I'm as well thinking of what I need to be doing when I'm there. So that's pretty much where I'm at at the moment. Okay, interesting. Well, uh, and then, will this be your first time then being in the Netherlands or at Delft since COVID started? I went last summer just to, like, I had to travel to Belgium and I stopped by, I think, one day to say hi in the lab and change laptops. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I had my new laptop there since before the pandemic. So I, wow. that kind of sounds really weird to say but I just want to kind of bring my old laptop pick up the new one and say hello to everybody and then uh, yeah since since we were still uh, not allowed to like have full uh, occupancy of the of the offices and all of that I I wasn't able to really and I didn't have childcare for my daughter as well so um, I just went there to say hi and leave again <laughs> so yeah, well, that must be that'll be nice then to be in person and not have mm-hmm. uh, COVID rules getting in in the way of yes, collaboration. Yes. Yes. Oh, exciting, nice. Mm-hmm. And what would you say is going well, and what are you struggling with? Yeah, I would say what is going well is then pretty much the continuation of what I mentioned last time. I I I find that setting more boundaries in my agenda and as well because I, I'm at two universities, it's easily it's easy for things to start to blur one into another and just everybody shooting in meetings whenever. Mm. So I'm 
I'm, I'm getting better at trying to separate two out and, and, and keep really time that, that I need for focusing and so that not everything sort of blurs one into the other. Um, so that, that's been going quite well. The thing that I would say that I'm struggling with more is that since we're still at the tail end of the pandemic, I see that a lot of students are struggling and it's feels like I'm weighing my words here how to say it, but it's at times extra, I would say, emotional labor than... Mm. I don't know if that's the, the right term for it. Um, and I don't feel that I can sort of pass it on to anybody else. Like I don't have a PI above me or especially here in Ecuador, I'm, there's, well, there's the Dean above me and, and, and that's about it. Um, so there's a lot that, that people offload on me and I don't have anywhere to like, pass it on to so that that feels sometimes like a weight on my heart like there's still a lot of students struggling and um and I know universities do a lot to to help students but sometimes I feel like there's okay where where would I be able to go and vent and say okay I'm worried about them uh it's not that I get home and I say okay you know I left my whatever it is my piece of concrete in the lab that yeah it, it's humans, right, that are that are struggling with major things in their lives, and and that's certainly been amplified by the pandemic, and that's well something that I take to heart, and and and, and sometimes it's it mm-hmm. that causes me additional worries. Yeah, I can imagine because yeah, as you say, they're they're humans. It reminds me of this paper. I think it may have even been written by, I should know this, but by one of my supervisors from my master's on the dark sides of transformational leadership. And it's basically exactly that, that if you're a leader or a supervisor who doesn't really care at all about your students, it's not going to affect you emotionally when they come to you with their own struggles. But of course, organizations and universities want transformational leaders, um, but they don't often consider the consequences for the leaders themselves of being that uh, you know, motivated, caring leader. Um, and that, yeah, as you say, there's spillover effects that um, mm-hmm. if you develop that close relationship with your students, yeah. uh, it's hard not to be affected when they're also struggling. Um, but it's not really something organizations think about. They always just mm-hmm. kind of phrase it as everyone should be transformational because that's best for the, the students or the employees um, mm-hmm. without considering the consequences. Yeah. And I have seen it mentioned in... I think when, when, when I was reading up on work-life balance in academia, then those from minorities, whether that's gender minority or any other type of minority, when, I, for example, there's very few women in, in the engineering faculty here, so there's more female students that come to me to talk to me. And mm-hmm. The same would be with, uh, uh, with people from other minorities. So there's already that sort of extra yeah emotional needs or yes yeah mm-hmm. no exactly there's quite a substantial amount of research i think on exactly that that mm-hmm. the emotional labor that people of minority groups are kind of i don't forced seems like too harsh of a word but that they have to bear is much greater than if you're in a majority group yeah mm-hmm. um 
Okay. Well, I I hope that things um, become your your load becomes lighter. Let's say that. <laughs> Thank you. All right, then brings me to the first question and that one came in through Instagram and that is how to do qualitative analysis in NVivo. Um, so Sarah, do you use NVivo as software at all or? Well, not in NVivo, but my master's thesis was qualitative and so I used Atlas TI, which I gather is quite similar. Um, but with NVivo itself, I don't actually have experience. Um, mm -hmm. And I... I'm assuming maybe this is incorrect that an engineering in Vivo wouldn't necessarily be the most common, but maybe I maybe I'm completely wrong. Mm -hmm. No, I, I've done some uh, research more uh, education related, as well as I did some time ago with colleagues. We did a study on the impact of COVID nineteen on academic parents. Um, mm. But since we were a group of academics from pretty much all over the world, we actually used the Qualtrics text analysis features to analyze the the, the, the qualitative portion of, of the research so that we could also all be just on on the survey platform and tag the responses in there. Yeah, yeah. I do remember when I was writing my master's thesis looking at in vivo because at least from my uh, relatively small understanding, in vivo and Atlas are the two primary um, tools for qualitative analysis. And I believe I chose Atlas because I was also, I knew that I would be using this data set afterwards um, with some other colleagues and Atlas has a cloud function. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to work collaboratively. Um, and in vivo, from what I can remember, maybe there's been updates since then, but it looked a little bit like a software from the 1990s. So mm -hmm. it felt a bit, um, a bit clunky, but I do know that, I mean, for uh, the typical sorts of um, inductive coding that you would probably be doing, it's certainly, I mean, it's designed for that. So it certainly has that functionality. Um, it's just maybe not the uh, most sophisticated in appearance, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the other question that came in is how easy is it to settle down in a different country other than the one where you'd obtained your PhD? Um, so I think you can rephrase that perhaps uh, and and replace PhD with math uh, with bachelor's for you, Sarah, mm -hmm. uh, with moving from Canada to the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, how? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'll focus this now more on the work side of things, and I think it depends a lot on the country that well, one that you're coming from, and two where you're moving to. I'm. In the Netherlands, I'm, you know, part of the reason why uh, I feel you know, quite lucky to to be here is that I know there are so many positions in the Netherlands or academic positions where Dutch is not required. Uh, I think the language barrier can be a big, mm -hmm. um, especially within Europe, that can be a big issue for students who maybe they can do their PhD no problem just in English, um, but then to really teach at a university there, um, you would need the local language. Um, and I think the Netherlands is uh, quite flexible in that regard. Um, so that was... That's you know something that's often been on my mind, um, and I certainly know that within Europe, I don't think there would be many other countries that maybe in in Scandinavia I could also find positions, especially within the business schools. Um, but in psychology, 
uh, it's oftentimes, you know, if I was in Germany, even in Belgium, I would be required to speak um, the local language. Um, so that's something I've thought about. And then, of course, I mean, we've spoken about this on previous episodes, but um, there's just, uh, you know, infinite consequences for your for your personal life when you're moving um, abroad. And then the last thing I would add is also the professional network. And so I can see now that I'm really establishing this network, especially, you know, having come from the conference of leadership researchers uh, or emotions researchers in, I would say, Belgium and the Netherlands um, or Flanders and the Netherlands because of the sort of common, well, maybe not common culture, but at least common language. Um, and I can imagine that if I were to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking ahead to when I finish my PhD that, I mean, who knows what's going to happen, of course, but that uh, I will have a pretty strong network, hopefully by the end of four years in the Netherlands and in Belgium, but really not so much in any other country. Uh, maybe I'll know a few people here and there. So I can also imagine that the networking side of things might be um, an additional uh, challenge maybe um, to moving to a different country. Um, I'm curious for you, Ava, because obviously you've um, been through that that journey yourself. Um, yeah, what your experience was. Yeah, so I'll answer it from settling down in Ecuador um, after getting my PhD in the, the Netherlands. And I, I already knew that I had my part-time position in the Netherlands and that I would be able to continue my research at the same in the same research group as where I got my PhD. So somehow that made sort of starting over in a different country less daunting. I knew I would be able to continue research and I would be able to continue to learn from the person who had been my daily supervisor during my PhD and, and with whom I kept working until his retirement. And I, I knew I would have still more time to learn. And that I, I think for many people who, for example, go to Ecuador or another country where there's not much research established, it can be very daunting to start research out of nowhere. So I think it it gave me time to think about the research lines that I would want to set up, that I would be able to set up here with what we have available in terms of limited testing and then desk research, um, analytical research, things like that. So it gave me more time to think about the topics that I wanted to develop for myself. Um, I think the other parts that made it much less intimidating or much less scary is that since my husband is from here, I knew I would be coming to a place where I have family. And I think that's that's been an... It's like, for example, if I would have moved countries all alone and having to start all over again after the PhD would have been different than coming here and knowing, okay, um, I have my husband is here. We're, this is where we finally get to live together instead of having to fly back and forth all the time. And, and this is where, where we have his family as well. So I think that made it easier to transition. I think the main difficulty is, as I said, to, especially if after a PhD, you move in directly into a faculty position, it is 
finding your research line and defining who you are as not the apprentice of somebody anymore as during the PhD, but well, as a professor and seeing like what, what defines me, what is the research that I want to do. And I think that's, um, that's something one needs to think about and, and define and, and see what's possible under the circumstances. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, when you finished your PhD and started as a, a, a professor, how much of your, I guess in your PhD, how closely aligned to your supervisor's topic was your own research? Was it, did you really feel as though you were an apprentice or was it more, I don't know, adjacent? Yeah, I, I I have this mental image of um, uh, of going down the stairs to go to a meeting uh, in in uh, at at the, um, at TNO the the research institute that is in front of us, walking behind my my daily supervisor and this team of the. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's used in the Disney movie. Uh, of the apprentice sorcerer and it's the it's a this classical music it just came to my head like i i'm 100 the apprentice sorcerer walking behind <laughs> the uh my my daily supervisor and i did find then he is the authority on bridges in the netherlands and i or concrete bridges i should say and i knew exactly this is what i want to learn so mm-hmm. i kind of really like my research was fully in my PhD research was fully in line with his specialty and what I did in my postdoc years was essentially projects that he got and that I worked on. So mm. I feel like I'm I was fully his apprentice. Yes. Yeah, and do you think? Because I'm thinking of my own situation now, and I mean my supervisor. I would say so. My research is. Um, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, really focused on leadership and emotions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we, my, my supervisor does some work on that, and he's a PI on this big grant that they got from the Belgian government in collaboration with other uh, psychologists mm-hmm. who all research emotions. But he, that's only one of many research streams that he has. And I think, you know, if he went to a conference, he wouldn't necessarily be known as the emotions researcher he's probably Mm -hmm. more known for his research on personality um and so sometimes I can see that I am also having to carve out more of a path for myself and decide for myself which are the interesting Mm -hmm. angles to go because um methodologically the sorts of analyses that he's done on personality work will be quite similar to what I will eventually be doing once I have data but in terms of what studies to design and what scales to use. Of course, he can guide me, but um, that's not really the kind of work he's been doing for the last mm-hmm. um, you know, 20 years or so. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm always wondering what the, I guess there's pros and cons to, to each. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say that I feel, I think I'm in a bit of a different position maybe than you were in mm-hmm. where, yeah, the, uh, we're learning together, I guess, sometimes too, of what, what's yeah, happening yeah, in the emotional yeah. literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other question that we got time ago um, is which apps and computer programs that you use daily? And this is a question that came in, I think it came in through Twitter a long time ago, and, and we addressed it in the Q&A in season one. 
And I just wanted to run this question past you because uh, uh, Rico and I addressed it as as engineers. And I wonder what are some apps and computer programs that you use daily, Sarah? Yeah, so let me see. Um, too many. <laughs> I would say Mendeley for reading, but that's also just because of the stage of my PhD that I'm in. Um, R for data analysis. Um, and then for just general managing tasks, I used to do it all in a paper calendar because I'm I don't know, old school and I like to <laughs> write on, on pen and paper, but eventually um, things just got too busy. And so actually just last week, I switched to uh, Todoist, which I saw was actually the one Ava, that you had recommended on your uh, blog of how you manage yes. your tasks. So thank you for that tip because, um, it's working well and that it's integrated with my calendar is exactly what I needed because, I mean, generally I like to think I'm a pretty organized person, but I could feel as, okay, suddenly I have uh, four projects on the go and master's students to supervise, not just one grant proposal to write. Um, I can't just keep it in my head. I need mm -hmm. an external tool to manage or else things are going to fall through the cracks. So those would be the main three at the moment. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, yeah, Teams um, and email to keep in touch with my my colleagues. Um, so yeah, thank you, Ava, for the tip. It's, uh, <laughs> it's working out quite well for me. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that, that it worked well for you. Um, and how about for you? I, I, I didn't, uh, I missed that episode in the first season. Yeah. So, uh, as you may have guessed, I used to do this and I use my Google calendar to sort of integrate, um, my, my planning and my, other calendars because I have my Outlook calendar of my two institutional email addresses that like people can see when I'm available and can put um, meetings in there in the blog set obviously are still open. So a lot of things that I do in terms of scheduling is as well because I work in different time zones is to close off or to put as not available the time slots when I'm not at work, which of course, leaves then less time of overlap um, with the Netherlands. But I'm, I, I used to take, at some point in the pandemic, I was taking meetings at 6 a.m. or even earlier. And it, it just, then teaching sometimes later in the evening or answering emails after my daughter goes to bed, there was like no end and no beginning to the day anymore, which is yeah. work was creeping into everything. If everywhere so I sort of blocked off everything between uh, I would say between 4 p.m. and 7 a.m. and as well put blocked off times that I that I need for for writing and for thinking so that's kind of a long answer to how I use my calendars uh, my Google calendar is kind of the main calendar that I use but I forward um, invitations from come in through my institutional email addresses, I forward it to my to my to my other calendars to the essentially to have the three calendars synced with the meetings. Mm. Uh, I haven't found a better way to synchronize these three calendars than just to forward things between my email addresses. So if anybody has a, a, a great tip on that, then <laughs> let me know if there's a, a way to synchronize it synchronize it automatically. That would be great. Um, <laughs> Other software that I use, I use as well. So I use Calendly, and that is a tool that 
creates a link where people can see your availability and immediately book a time slot for a meeting. So I've started to use this uh, to reduce the back and forth that I have with students, for example, to set up a meeting. Um, because I, I used to have like two blocks of office hours um, weekly, but I noticed with the pandemic, I can have my office hours and be here in my office. But if students are still at home, then, well, they will still be emailing me for a Zoom appointment. So I started to use Calendly, which essentially just looks in my calendar for free time spots and sets up possible time slots uh, of half an hour meetings and people can just pick a time and it will automatically generate the, the meeting as well as the Zoom link for the meeting. So that makes things a bit easier for me. Mm, mm. And then when it comes to really software that I use, I would say I use uh, EndNote for references. I use Evernote for uh, taking notes. And even when I take notes by hand of a meeting, I will often uh, take a photograph of it and have it in Evernote to, to have a log of, of the meetings that I've had. And in terms of data processing, well, I don't do that much data processing anymore, but what I use is MATLAB. Okay. That's pretty much what I use. Then another question that we've been addressing in a number of Q&As uh, is a bit random, but do you have any recommendations of best books that you've read in 2022 so far? Yeah, well, ever since I started the PhD, I find my desire to read nonfiction has plummeted because uh, my day job is reading all nonfiction mm -hmm. and um, some might say very dry nonfiction. So um, I have been yeah exploring more uh, just novels and uh, because also some of my research is cross-cultural or hopefully will be cross-cultural, um, looking at how these affect dynamics work in uh, Western Europe and then more in collectivist cultures, I wanted to read some books by Japanese authors. And so I just finished um, Norwegian Wood by Murakami. Um, and yeah, I can, 10 out of 10, I can highly recommend it. I mean, I guess it's a bit of a classic. Um, and so it was a good balance for me of getting a little bit more of a feel for, for Japanese culture, but then it's also just a story of a person who's uh, in his, he's a student, he's in his 20s, he's kind of finding his way in the world. Um, and, you know, it's not a beach read, but it's also not one where you need to uh, really be, you know, completely focused to read it the way you would be for um, an academic article, let's say. So that would be my, my recommendation. Um, how about for you? Yeah, I, I realized I put this question in here and that I actually didn't think of what I was going to say. So I'm, uh, I have to look back at what I read uh, this year so far. And I would say in fiction, the book that touched me most is Milkman by Anna Burns. Uh, it's, it doesn't actually mention where and when it's set, but from the context, you can see that it's set uh, in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And it's a story of how a rumor can expand. And, and, and it's, it's, 
it's written in, it, it took me a little bit of time to get it adjusted to the writing style because it's the writing style itself is a bit um, unconventional. Um, but I do think it's a, it's worthwhile to, to read a book, explore it. And then for nonfiction, um, let me give a shout out to Making Time to Write by uh, Katie Mazak. And it's really a book for academics um, how how to make time to write when you're uh, on a tenure track or beyond, um, but not from the perspective of saying, okay, these are the things that you need to do, but how our writing and our research for, and it's especially written for uh, academic women and non-binary people on how defending our time to write and think and make our research contribution is a way to resist some of the pressures for overwork of academia that are dictated by people who are not women and non-binary. So it's a, it was an interesting read for me as well. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just starting to recognize that, that protecting that time to write is so important because my only experience with research really so far is when I had one project. And so inherently you just have, that's all you're doing. And so that's where most of my thoughts would be going when I was working. Whereas now I find I'm juggling so many different things and it's still way less than any tenure track person would have. And I can find that, you know, it's not like I can just pick up a paper or the introduction to a paper and immediately spell out eloquent sentences that, you know, and then drop it after an hour. Like I really need to carve out time to, um, to get into it. And so, yeah, well, maybe that's, um, I should, I should jump back into the nonfiction for that one because, uh, I can imagine that's something that, well, I, I struggle with now and will just as things become more busy and you have more projects on the go. That brings me to the last question then we often address in a Q&A is, uh, what are you listening to while working, if you listen to anything at all? And if you have any recommendations for CDs or podcasts that we should listen to? Yeah, so I, well, I'll give a shout out to a few podcasts that I listen to. Uh, one would be, well, maybe just one for the academic audience would be Quantitude. Um, so for any uh, fellow psychologists, I can definitely recommend Quantitude. It's uh, for a podcast on pretty dry topics, they make it very entertaining. Um, and because in my own research, I'm having, will have to be, learn several new methods. This is a nice way of becoming familiar in a pretty low stakes way of, um, yeah, the pros and cons of these new methods, um, but also just familiarizing myself with what other people are using in the field, because there's so many different ways to go about, you know, it depends on so many factors, but there's so many different tools and techniques that are out there now. And so I think a lot of PhD students in psychology maybe just kind of learn what their supervisor uses. Um, but it's nice to realize that by learning a new method that might give you a chance to look at your data in a new way or ask different research questions, this kind of thing. So I can definitely recommend Quantitude and the hosts are, uh, they have a very good sense of humor. So uh, that's one that, um, I mean, I, I can definitely recommend. Um, and then when I'm writing, uh, I 
since my undergrad have a habit of listening to just one song on repeat for maybe a week straight and <laughs> it's uh, for whatever reason it just blocks out all the noise and gets me into the zone and I'm sure mm -hmm. uh that my colleagues are very grateful for headphones because <laughs> everyone else is crazy that I do that but that's just mm -hmm. what works for me it reminds me when when I was a, a student, I worked my summers in in a grocery store and they had this one hour long um, like track list that they would mm. update once a month with like the, the hits of the moment and some some classics. And they would repeat it over every hour mm. for a month straight. <laughs> and like I knew everything by heart after the first week. And after the, yeah. the third week, I was like, when's the next month coming for a, uh, a refresher of the playlist, please? <laughs> yeah, I think if it weren't for writing being such a mentally taxing task, it, that would also mm -hmm. drive me crazy. But um, yeah, I, for whatever reason, the one song just gets me into the zone. <laughs> um, and how about for you? Do you listen to anything while you're while you're working? Yeah, I pretty much always have music going on, and I pretty much always have. Um, I do tend to be particular about what I listen to, so I get distracted if there's too much. Depends on what I'm doing. Like if I'm replying emails, it doesn't matter that much. But if I need to concentrate, I cannot stand things that have vocals that are recognizable. So it has to be either that metal where I don't understand anything of the, the vocals that come out, or it has to be um piano music or instrumental but not orchestra because then i would start listening to since i, I played a cello I, I i will start listening what the cellos are playing and then i get distracted mm -hmm. as well um so it has to be <laughs> either instrumental like shoegaze or anything like that and that is more like a background or it has to be um, more extreme metal that doesn't have any clean vocals and that is completely distorted. Um, and when it comes to favorite podcasts, I think one recommendation that I can give is um, Before Breakfast, which is a um, podcast that releases a daily time management or whatnot uh, tip uh, hmm. or work-related tip. And it's, uh, it's five minutes. Uh, so I often listen to it at the beginning of the day and uh, it, it's, it, I, I've taken a lot of useful advice from there in a short amount of time. And mm. um, I would say as a CD recommendation for this year, I don't have anything this year that really jumps out to me, but I think the new album by the Finnish band Amorphis, which sits in that uh, that metal range, but with a little bit of clean vocals, uh, fits as my recommendation so far for for twenty twenty two. Okay, I will have to give both of those a listen. Well, thank you all for listening. This has been episode seventy of the PG Talk podcast, in which we address some questions that came in through Twitter and Instagram. If you have any more questions for us, always feel free to reach out to us and. Um, Send in your questions and we'll be back next week with more on PhD Live and Research Mechanics. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>